News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel. It's June 17th, Wednesday afternoon. I'm here with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hello. And just returned to New York, Alex Brooklyn. Alex, how are you doing? What are you saying? Uh, hi. I mean, I left the city and it was, you know, pandemic, empty town. And I came back to what, I, what looks like Bourbon Street outside of my house. With like Bleaker. people eating pizza on Bleecker Street, Village. no masks. Greenwich Village, no masks. Pizza everywhere, drinking. I mean, it's like uh, I came back and people forgot there was a pandemic. And uh, I can understand people forgetting both out of impatience and because the news has been coming fast and furious. Just this morning, uh, Mayor de Blasio said phase two for New York when uh, offices and uh, small congregations and harbors and other things can reopen. But that was still unclear. Then uh, Andrew Cuomo at his press conference where he said it's happening on Monday. So things are, are continuing to move forward in New York. Meantime, Tish James, the attorney general, had her first day of what's going to be two because so many people wanted to testify of testimony about the, uh, the police and uh, violence and brutality but these protests, where people are out to protest violence and brutality, with a lot of dramatic reports from there, parks and playgrounds are still closed for the time being. Dermot Shea, the police commissioner who no longer seems to appear in the same place as the mayor, is talking about maybe getting the police out of the schools, which is, I think, a topic we're going to dig into more on a future show soon. And the city council is voting on the Post Act, which we'll talk about more in a minute, on Thursday, and Mayor Bill de Blasio is coming along on that. So there seems to be this accelerating reform momentum around policing in particular, where de Blasio said today that there's going to be a massive online database of NYPD misconduct that will be up very soon and will keep us updated. He says that a lot. And uh, they were going to change the rules to, to get much quicker starting points, at least, for uh, the NYPD's own internal disciplinary procedures. So as it happens, Chrissy and I talked today with... Maya Wiley, university professor at the New School, an MSNBC contributor, but many New Yorkers know her as leading the charge when she was head of the CCRB, that's the Civilian Complaint Review Board in New York, uh, that most famously brought the charges against Daniel Pantaleo, the officer who put Eric Garner in that fatal chokehold in Staten Island, which ultimately led to Officer Pantaleo's dismissal from the NYPD. Let's take a listen. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer reporting in from Dover, Delaware with my co-host Harry Siegel from the great state of New York. Hi, Harry Siegel. Hello. And today we have with us Maya Wiley. We are so excited to have the university professor at the New School and also an MSNBC contributor with us today. Maya, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with both of you. Thanks for having me. So first things first, let's check in. How are you doing? Are you still in New York and how's everything going? I am still in New York. We have stayed in the city from the beginning of the pandemic and we are going nowhere. <laughs> and we're also quite fine despite our deep concern for the city and for the country 
but also appreciating our privilege and how mm-hmm. fortunate we are. Because unlike so many New Yorkers, we do have paychecks and we do have health insurance and just recognizing how bad it is for, for so many of our friends, neighbors, communities. Right. I mean, Harry and I have talked extensively about some of our concerns for the summer, just because, mm-hmm. you know, camps thus far are questionable. We know summer youth employment is abysmal. Yep. And a lot of folks who aren't in essential jobs are really struggling to find a paycheck. And many members of their own communities have no prospects of a paycheck. Absolutely. And what's happening with folks and their rent and the fact that the unemployment rates are so high in the city, but it's also that they're so high in black and Latino communities where people didn't have savings, where people were in overcrowded housing where people were living paycheck to paycheck and where people are dying disproportionately from this horrible virus. So all of these are things that are deep concern. And I think we have a lot of opportunity to work on and fix now. And we need to. So coming out of the protest, I mean, what are some of the opportunities that you're feeling? So the opportunity that I think the protests have so rightly brought to the attention of politicians and the public is to reprioritize our budgeting, to really think about where we are currently investing resources and how we can invest them better. You know, at the root of the demand for protesters to radically rethink policing is really to say, why Do we have the nation's largest police force along with 30 years of historic drafts and violent crime? And why is there no peace dividend that's actually investing in communities in things like summer youth employment, in things like having psychologists and school guidance and social workers in all our schools? And why don't we have more job training programs? and more job ladder opportunities for communities that need to be able to earn paychecks that actually pay the bills. Why aren't we investing in housing for people who are homeless at a greater rate? I I think these are exactly the kinds of questions the pandemic of coronavirus was putting before us and the pandemic of police violence, you know, sharpening some of the budget priorities we need to reconsider. So it seems like the defund the police movement, which some people take to mean abolish the police and others take to mean shifting budget priorities, has taken on considerably more prominence over recent weeks, in some ways has been a real spur to reform efforts. And you were the head of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the uh, chair. And I'm just curious how you think those two parts fit together and what you think of what our elected officials, particularly the mayor and the governor and the lawmakers have done already and what else needs to be done, particularly past 50A in terms of real disclosure, but uh, also more generally, what should be coming next? Yeah, so I, I think that's a really important question. First, let me say that transparency and accountability, you know, civilian oversight of police misconduct, being able to make that misconduct public, let the public see and know it, is absolutely a fundamental change that needed to happen. And it shouldn't have taken the death of George Floyd for it to happen. 
you know, you would have thought that it was enough to have the killing of Eric Garner to have that happen in New York. It unfortunately required the protests that we have seen for the past three weeks. I say unfortunately because I don't believe it should have required the protests. But it is important because it's fundamental to democracy that we have transparency. We can't have informed decision making. We can't have the ability of residents to point to what they want changed and know and understand what can and should be changed if we don't see, if we don't see the data, if we don't get the data, if we don't understand what's happening within our public agencies and the police have had significantly more ability to hide than any other public agency, even though they have significantly more power over the public. I think so they it, might still with, with these reforms though, right? Like the well, this is where I was, yeah, put it in 30 days. Yeah. Well, this is where I was going to go, which is it was necessary and it should have happened and it's good that it did. And it does have some meaning. It is not meeting the demands for a real major rethinking of policing that demonstrators are asking for and the opportunity that they are creating for meaningful change for this city is quite real. One piece of that is certainly much more transparency, but I would say it goes beyond. And certainly what I would say is we should have what Minneapolis did, which was literally create an open portal where you could type in any police officer's name on any given day for any reason and see what that police officer's disciplinary record looks like. We shouldn't have to ask for it, is what I'm saying. It should just be publicly available. But here's the thing. Minneapolis did that before George Floyd was killed. That tells us that the other thing that demonstrators are asking for is something we still need to talk much more aggressively about and start to achieve, which is how do we prevent that from happening in the first place. And we can't do that unless we're both reorienting our budget priorities, because as we have seen, many of the black and Latino people who are being killed by police and white people as well, who are also killed by police, so often are being killed in situations where it's not even clear why there's police involvement or where police involvement can be so much less physically threatening than it is because there are other people who can be called into a situation. And Eric Garner, it seems to me, was a perfect example of that. Selling untaxed cigarettes was not a public safety issue. So there's a very different way of thinking about that in terms of what we're resourcing and how we're resourcing it. But the fact is that even with that transparency and the immediate access to police disciplinary records in Minneapolis, it didn't save George Floyd's life. And so we need both. We, of course, cannot have democracy without transparency, but we also need the radical rethinking about What do we mean by policing? What's enough policing and what's too much? And how can we better deploy our resources so that we have significantly less need for policing? So, Maya, where do you think we start? Because, you know, as you've said before, Minneapolis and so many police departments across the country already have a lot of these provisions on the books, yet we're still seeing these horribly tragic events. So with the NYPD, one of the largest paramilitary organizations in the world, where do we begin? Well, I think we begin with having uh, one one aspect of transparency we haven't discussed is the NYPD budget. Mm -hmm. So there are priority decisions being made in what is presented in the form of budget 
to the city. And, you know, lawmakers have been complaining for years in the city that they don't understand NYPD spending and their priorities. And if you look at their budget, it's like, mm-hmm. you, you know, it, it it's it's hard to understand how they're really spending the money. And I, the reason I say that is because what we really should be doing is talking about how many police officers can we cut from the force? <laughs> we're not having that conversation yet. We're, we're talking about numbers, a, a billion dollars sounds like a lot of money until you think about the fact that we pay out over the past five years, the city has paid out mm-hmm. over a billion dollars in claims for excessive force, mm-hmm. for civil rights violations, for personal injury and property damage. And that that doesn't even come out of the police's budget. That comes out of our pockets, out of the general fund. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes out of the fund that we could be using for other things. But that also tells us that something's wrong with how we're policing and that the number of police officers we have is something that should be on the table in order to create more resources for investing in our residents doing really well. Mm-hmm. That should be happening right now. We should be having a serious conversation about that. Well, this morning in the city, they reported that the first lawsuits are now coming out with folks who are now suing the NYPD because they've been victims of police brutality and police violence during some of the protests over the past two weeks. What do you think about that direction and what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I, the thing that was so shocking, not shocking uh, in the sense that, that these are what protesters were complaining about, but shocking that in the context of protesting police excessive force and violence, the police were demonstrating it mm-hmm. <laughs> to yes. the public. I mean, they were making the point that protesters were trying to draw attention to. Uh, And yes, of course, it wasn't every single police officer. I saw in some video a police officer pulling back the arm of another police officer who was becoming aggressive. So it's certainly true that that was happening as well. But the reality is we were seeing the very things that protesters were saying had to change. So these claims represent that. You know, it's both a cost to people in the sense of the trauma they experience, both physical and psychological, it's also a cost to our public coffers when we're talking about cutting education, uh, when we're talking about overcrowded classrooms and wondering how we right-size classrooms, when we're talking about the fact that we have far too many people accused of nonviolent offenses who are still in Rikers at a time of pandemic, when that is a danger to their lives and to the lives of corrections officers who are working at Rikers. This shift has to be much more significant and transformative. And what these protesters, but also the violence that has erupted in protest has told us is we got to do it faster. We got to do it more aggressively. And we have to be willing to talk about the things that have been taboo in political circles, like why do we need 36,000 uniformed police officers in the city when we have about 318 murders a year? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the money issues come down past the size of the force. It's also pensions, that the bulk of NYPD spending is payroll and personnel and that benefits and pensions. And it's a job that you can do for 20 years, with retire or have a second career. And it's been built that way, and that's been strengthened over the years by Albany, which until last year, the judge forced them to, wouldn't turn over even the names of officers and the pensions they were getting. Mm-hmm. And if you start following the money, that, that then becomes inevitable. But it's very directly then spoils that 
if you shrink the size of the NYPD, you're cutting into how much money there is there to divvy up in a way that until now, at least state lawmakers, the governor, the mayor have not seemed at all eager to look at. And thus you're getting we'll turn over body camera footage in 30 days. You can still edit the footage, by the way. Disciplinary records are public, but you have to foil them, mm-hmm. which is an arduous process. And already foils are getting rejected in the you know days since we've had this. I'm curious if, you know, Cuomo said it's time for the protesters to go home. My sense is that they've sort of forced the beginning of this conversation, but that we're still pretty early into it. If you're looking at those sorts of broader reforms and potentially shrinking the size of the NYPD. I think you're absolutely right that we're at the beginning, not the end. And the steps that we have seen are the beginnings, meaning they are steps that needed to be taken and they are insufficient. And that's why protesters are not going home. That's why we still see people pouring into the streets. And I think what we need leaders to do, what leadership is in this moment and moments like these are recognizing that leaders have to respond to what the public is pointing their attention to. It's easy to be in a bubble when you're a leader. It's easy to continue to do things as they've always been done. And part of what democracy is all about is the public saying, you're missing the boat. Mm-hmm. We're here on it, but you've just missed it. So you're, <laughs> so we've left you on shore while we're sailing to a better place. Right. We need you to figure out how you're going to get on this boat with us. And that's, that's what's happening right now. And, you know, that's democracy. And so I think that what we should be hearing from our elected leaders is not go home. It's we hear you. What more do we need to do? Let's figure it out. And there are some hard questions. I'm not trying to oversimplify what it means to take a good hard look at how to transform the current reality. But let me tell you some things that I think are so obvious because it's in the research. Well, actually, I'm going to start with accountability, you know, Harry, to your point, because Right now, the police department's not really accountable to anyone. You know, yes, the mayor hires and fires the police commissioner. But as we've said, there's a lot of the budget's a black box. The priority decisions the police are making is not transparent at all. Discipline is one part of that, but it's not the only part. It's everything about policing. So we should have civilian oversight over police policy and priorities. That's not just civilian oversight on police complaints for misconduct, which we should also have, but also on priorities and policies, because we'd be having a different excessive force conversation if it were civilians who had the ability to say, no, what you brought us is not what we want to see. Go back and try again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not yet meeting the gold standard models that we're seeing in other places like Camden, which has an 18 page excessive force policy, not a two-page or three-page excessive force policy. Mm. Much more detailed about what you can and cannot do. But civilian oversight of policy, of the patrol guide, of budget priorities would help that. But more importantly as well is what is policing? What role should it be playing? We know that there's one arrest every three minutes in this country, but only 5% of them are for serious crimes. 5%. So what that tells me is we want to think about what it means to focus on the 5% 
and then how to get police out of the 95 percent. And that means the problem oriented approach where police are also in partnership with other agencies and communities on problem solving, not just punishment Mm -hmm. on seeing trends where they're like, you know, we're getting these calls like guys selling untaxed cigarettes in Staten Island by the ferry. That's not really a policing issue. That's a policy issue. That's a poverty issue. Who can we get engaged in that issue? That's a different conversation than, well, let's go do a sweep and arrest people when there's an underlying economic disparity problem that we have to solve. Right. Well, I mean, my, my, my dad always says there are only two reasons why people steal. It's need and greed. And I think we have a lot more need in the city and, and it's being translated in other ways. But before we let you go, Maya, you worked in the de Blasio administration. So I want to know, how do you think our mayor is doing? And what does the next mayor need to be doing? And then the final question that basically everyone from Uganda to Utica Avenue wants to know is, could that next mayor be you? (laughs) And when I say Uganda, it's because, you know, it's there over Christmas and you've got quite a fan base. (laughs) I'm, I'm deeply humbled by that. Well, let me first say that I am so grateful to protesters and the diverse set of protests we've had, the fact that the entire city is showing up in these protests, and that I am grateful that that has produced what we are starting to hear and see now from this mayor and from City Hall, uh, to broadening the conversation and the ideas around what we're doing around policing and around police budget. We have a lot more to do, and it's clear to me that the next mayor must make fundamental and principled decisions about our priorities in in our limited resources and how we're spending them. And that priority should be on the kinds of recovery that ensure that every New Yorker can still be a New Yorker, (laughs) that can afford to be in the city, can have a job that pays the bills, and can be assured that when they need help, help is what they're going to get rather than punishment. And that is job one, I think, for every New Yorker. I think that is something we will make progress on before the next mayor's mayor. And I think that we should all be asking everyone who runs for mayor about what their platform is to produce that. Because as we are seeing in the country, we have what some people are rightly calling three pandemics. Mm -hmm. We have the pandemic that is coronavirus. We have the pandemic that is policing uh, and police violence. And we have the pandemic that undergirds both of those, which is systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And this is the city that is able to and absolutely should lead the country in modeling what it means to address all three of those pandemics. So you nailed questions one and two, but the third one... (laughs) Was could that mayor be you? Well, I am exceedingly humbled by the question, and I am really excited about doing everything I can, using everything that's available to me to be part of the solution of the city. And that's where I'm focused now. I'm focused on policing. I'm focused on talking to folks and figuring out how I can be helpful and where I can show up that will enable me to use the privilege of my platform to advance our undermining these three pandemics. And that's what I'm going to keep doing. 
My okay. Go ahead. As you've been putting this uh, this pressure on, I just have to say, Mayor De Blasio is doing his Wednesday morning presser, and he is saying that all trial decisions going forward are going to be published immediately. The posting information is going to be online for uh, pending NYPD cases, including names, charges, disciplinary date, resolution, and all that, and that all these records are going to be fully transparent and online. So we'll see what that means, but it does seem that pressure is building to uh, to do more more quickly. Yes, and I think it's right for residents to demand more and to demand it more quickly. Thank well, you so much for uh, for joining us and taking the time. I hope we'll uh, keep this conversation going. Thank you for having me, and I can't wait till the day when we can actually see each other in person. <laughs> oh, I miss our, our I miss our green room hugs. I, so I miss do. our green room hugs. Well, I miss our green room hugs. Thank you, Maya. Uh, we've been talking to Maya Wiley, university professor at the New School and also an MSNBC contributor and an all-around favorite New Yorker of not just the podcast, but people in all five boroughs. Thank you. Be safe and well. You too. You too. Then, Alex, you talked on Wednesday to a repeat FAQ guest and the soon-to-be co-host of his own pod, Albert Fox Khan. Uh, the timing on that is pretty great since in your conversation, he said uh, it still wasn't clear what the mayor was going to do after the city council votes on the STOP Act, which they appear to have enough votes to uh, to override a veto when they pass. And then Wednesday morning, Blasio said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to sign that. Yeah, when we talked earlier, he had basically said that the mayor was had been missing in action on this, even though the bill had been you know, circling around for years. And de Blasio had previously said that he had just not had time to read it. However, on Wednesday, today, when we're recording this, de Blasio did come out and say that he was not going to veto, that he was going to sign the POST Act. Um, so that is really, really good news. And to explain a lot about the POST Act and surveillance in the city, here is my interview with Albert Foxconn, the founder and head of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. Stop. Stop. But go listen to the interview. This is FAQ NYC. I'm Alex Brooklyn, and I am here with an FAQ regular, Albert Fox Khan, who is the founder of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project a big project they've been working on for quite some time. The POST Act is coming up for a vote on this Thursday by the New York City Council. Albert, can you give us a little bit of a primer for those who are just jumping in on this whole thing, what the POST Act is? Yeah, thank you so much for having me back, Alex. That's it's so incredibly exciting to be, you know, so uh, close to an actual vote on this bill. So uh, POST Act stands for Public Oversight Surveillance Technology Act, which is a, a long, long name for a bill, but it's a really simple premise. The NYPD needs to tell New Yorkers what tools it's buying to spy on our communities. It needs to provide a p- privacy policy and needs to be audited because For years, the NYPD has been able to buy whatever it wants using federal dollars, using private money that goes through its foundation, a charitable slush fund uh, that doles out millions of dollars every year to NYPD programs without giving us any information on how they're spending the cash. And and so this is the first step of reasserting civilian control of our surveillance 
here in New York. And, and it's exciting for me because suddenly we'll actually be able to answer the question of how is the NYPD monitoring protesters? How is it spying on you know, communities of color? How is it, you know, tracking Muslim New Yorkers and other groups that have been targeted with, you know, biased and broken surveillance for years? So basically, up until now, you're saying the NYPD has had a lot of surveillance technology at their disposal. Um, I'm very curious about some of these charitable slush funds and whether that was a way to, like, get around some accountability. But I don't think a lot of people really realize just how much technology the NYPD has access to. Can you just give us a little bit more information about like the kind of things that we are being looked at by, you know, spied on with? <laughs> yeah, it's like everything from a bad episode of The Twilight Zone or Black Mirror. It's, you know, facial recognition systems that, you know, are used thousands of times a year, even though they're shown to be less accurate for Black and Latinx New Yorkers. It's drones that are flying over protests. It's thermal imaging. It's automated license plate readers that can track basically every car in New York City. It's using social media data to make a prediction of whether we're likely to commit a crime. It's this just really broken pattern of buying high-tech tools that have no evidence they work and using them to just further the worst sorts of abuses of police surveillance. And we have to be clear. Police surveillance isn't just a matter of privacy, it's a, it's a matter of life and death. Because more surveillance leads to more police stops, more police arrests, and more police violence. Because as George Floyd and so many others have shown us, every single police encounter can be a matter of life and death. And Right now, they don't have to be accountable publicly at all, or are they? No. They, no. they get money outside of the city appropriation process. You know, there's the money they get from the city council, and they jump through the hoops, and they, you know, fill out the forms. But then they get money outside of that process. They get private dollars. They get federal dollars from the Trump administration. And they never have to tell us, the people of New York, how they're spending that money and what systems they're using. So we don't get to know, like, if we're being videoed, <laughs> excuse my layman's term, videoed, or if our cell phones are being tracked, they don't have to tell us what they're using and where they're using it. So how, up until now, have we been finding out? Or have you guys uh, been finding out? A lot of lawsuits. You know, right now we're suing the NYPD, and we're about to do it a lot more uh, under freedom of information law demanding records on their existing programs. But that can take years just to get a single set of documents. Uh, we find out through criminal prosecutions sometimes when defense attorneys get information on how their client was targeted. But there have been cases. Um, let me give you the example of st so-called stingrays, or technically they're called ISMI catchers. And these are fake cell towers the NYPD will put up telling every single cell phone in the neighborhood, hey, connect to me instead of the regular cell tower. And doing that, they can track our location, they can track who we're calling, they can track how a community is uh, coming together. And in the case of a protest, they can track nearly every person there. A and so it took years before people found out that the NYPD had been using this technology, tracking people, and then hiding 
So tell me a little bit about this bill that's going to be voted on on this Thursday. That's June 18th. It is June 18th. Yeah. So this Thursday, June 18th, City Council is going to vote on this bill. Now, the bill's sponsor is Vanessa L. Gibson. And is it all of City Council that votes on the bill or just a few City Council people? Just so that I can give our listeners some context on, like, who they should be looking to that will be voting on this. Yeah, so this is what's called the stated city council meeting. This is where the entire city council votes on legislation that's already been heard by individual committees. So all 51 of them get a vote. And, and, you know, this has been years in the making. You know, I I started working on this legislation back in 2017. And and we, we pushed and we pushed and we pushed and we got a hearing and we got momentum and we got a lot of co sponsors. And then the city council term ended. And then in 2018, we reintroduced the bill, uh, working with uh, Vanessa Gibson. And we pushed and pushed and pushed again. And it took years just to get a hearing this last December. And you know, at this point, we have more than two-thirds of the city council signed on to the bill. As of tonight, 37 members, well above a veto-proof majority, support the legislation. So that means even if Mayor de Blasio decided to shoot down this bill, we would still have the votes to override it. Let's talk about Mayor de Blasio. How has he been on the subject of transparency when it comes to uh, surveillance and the NYPD? I mean, he's been, to say he's been missing in action would be uh, putting it charitably. You know, he was asked about the post act last uh week and he said well that he hadn't had time to read the bill it's been pending for more than 1200 days and the bill is less than 900 words long he's had plenty of time i mean and and, yeah we had you on what we had you and lizzo sullivan on i guess like a year and a half ago on faq talking about some of the dangers of uh surveillance in the city and um you know, how one of the committees that had been formed in order to have a small amount of oversight on the NYPD were basically kind of just impotent. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about the Post Act uh, back then in April of last year, and we've been talking about it consistently since 2017. And the mayor, there is a ray of hope. The mayor did say in his press conference that it was important for New Yorkers to know what spy tools were being used by the police department, that it was important to have transparency, that it was important for us to know what they do and do not have. But, you know, he hasn't committed to signing the legislation. And really, I, I think, you know, this is something that if he had gone behind it, could have been had could have become law, you know, years ago. And, and for someone who remembers the sort of campaign he r- ran for mayor, yeah, back in 2013, who remembers the candidate who pledged to take on the NYPD, who who talked about, you know, anti-black policing. You know, it it really is shocking to me that he hasn't once addressed this. Well, it also seems like we're a far cry from that now. There's been a lot revealed during the pandemic and the following protests about our mayor, I would say. He was definitely put to task in these past months. And and I would just say, look, 
you can't defund the NYPD without also defunding mass surveillance because these programs are wasting tens of millions of dollars a year and they're not making anyone safer. They're perpetuating bias. They're creating a lot of the same sorts of police encounters that lead, you know, to, to violence over and over again. And, and so I, it just seems to me that unless we understand what tools the NYPD has, unless we understand how it's spending money, there's no way to really tackle the budget. So what can listeners do? Is this like a call your council person kind of situation? Well, that's been like the exciting part. Just like we saw with 50A, we've seen so many people reaching out to their council members, reaching out to Speaker Johnson, asking for this vote that is finally coming. So yes, continuing to reach out to their council member, continuing to reach out to Corey Johnson, because we may need uh, to override a veto. But I think right now also reaching out to the mayor and telling him that this bill is necessary that we must enact surveillance reform, that we have to tell the public how we are being watched because, you know, this isn't some revolutionary new practice. This is just keeping up with other cities around the country, cities like, you know, Nashville and San Francisco and Seattle, which have gone much farther than what the Post Act would do. So this isn't something that, you know, just, us privacy nuts want. This is something that is part of the bare minimum for having a democratically accountable police department in the 21st century. And also, we're just talking about making them tell us what tools they're using. Like, if we wanted to know if our police departments were carrying bazookas all of a sudden, we also want to know how they're, you know, monitoring us, what tools they're using for that. But also... I was wondering if you could just describe for me before we close out, if you could just describe for me some of the more interesting things you guys have found with facial recognition, not quite up to snuff, and how it's racially biased along those lines. Because I know that's something that you and Liz talk about a lot, and I'm wondering if you could just describe that for us a little. Yeah, so in the last week, we've seen a lot of the tech giants, you know, IBM, Microsoft, Amazon, saying that they're not going to sell police departments facial recognition technology because it really is inherently broken. It it, it gets it wrong more often for women, non-binary individuals, Black and Latinx individuals, people who are older, people who are younger, basically anyone other than middle-aged white dudes you're getting higher error rates. And higher error rates means more risk of false arrest, more risk of wrongful imprisonment, more risk of police violence. And so, you know, facial recognition under the best of circumstances is a really dangerous and distorting technology. But here in New York, we have some of the most abusive facial recognition practices anywhere in the country. Our NYPD facial identification section routinely photoshops images from, you know, security cameras and body cameras and drones before feeding it through the database. They'll, they'll take a suspect's image and they'll photoshop the, the eyes uh, so they are open if, if they were actually closed. They'll photoshop the mouth so it's closed if it was actually open. They'll take entire sections of the face and copy it from a model they find on Google and just copy and paste it so that you can have symmetrical facial features. 
And then they'll run these distorted, altered images, these art projects through the facial recognition database and arrest people because of it. Uh, and, after and, they've after they've tried to alter it to make it like a, a better angle or something in order to run it through a facial recognition. Yeah, and yeah. so they'll use they'll use these altered images. They'll use celebrity lookalikes. They will use all sorts of practices that have no scientific basis whatsoever. This is pseudoscience, and it took decades for us to realize just how many people were wrongfully convicted of serious crimes because of pseudoscience, like bite mark evidence, fiber analysis, hair analysis. People went to death row because of this. People got convicted of murder and sent to life imprisonment. We could be setting up the next great wrongful conviction crisis today using these technologies and using them in the way that the NYPD is misusing them. Wow. You could have a whole series on this stuff, which brings me to a little announcement that Albert Foxconn, Lizzo Sullivan, and Ollie Winston, so far, are the three hosts signed up for what will be a new series called Surveillance in the City. In partnership with the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, Surveillance in the City is going to be a gleeful romp through the history of, you know, surveillance in New York and uh, how it's affecting our daily lives now. So I'm pretty excited about that, and uh, I'm pretty excited to introduce it to the world as well. I couldn't be more excited, and really, it's going to be a chance to look at everything that's going wrong in police surveillance today, but also all the ways that we people are fighting around the country to fix it and the models that work to keep our communities safe from biased and broken police surveillance. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. And I look forward to talking to you after the big vote on Thursday. Thank you so much for having me back. Really appreciate it. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research but we recorded this week from all around New York City in these United Allegedly States of America. A special thank you to our guests, Maya Wiley of the New School, and to Albert Fox Khan of the Stop Project, stopspying.org. Everyone, be safe, be sane, be good. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.